The book of Genesis is the story of beginnings. Within its pages we meet Creator God, are introduced to mankind in all his glory and his shame, and get the first glimpses of the rescuer, Jesus Christ. You're listening to a sermon series on the first four of Genesis 10 stories by Pastor Stacy Potts. The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. You're in Genesis chapter 3, look at verse number 1. Moses writes, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Father, we want to take a few moments this morning here in your word as we look today for the very first time, really, at the text of Genesis 3. We need to understand where sin came from. We need to understand its root, its foundation. Because in this story of this very first sin, not only do we learn about what happened to the perfect world that God had made 
back in Genesis 1, we also learn about all temptation for all time, about the results of sin for all time. This is not just a a story of history that's interesting to read and has no impact. This, This is a story that is as real for us today as it was for Adam and Eve however many thousands of years ago. And so, Father, as we come now and we begin working through the text, I pray that your Spirit will be active here in our church, that your Spirit will take the Word and use it to cut our hearts, to show us how ingrained sin is in our very beings, how it is at the deepest root of us. Lord, help us to see that, So that whether today or next week or the weeks ahead as we work through this story and we see how you responded to sin, we'll understand what the hope of the gospel is. We'll understand what Jesus has come and done for us. We'll understand what we would have had apart from him. And that we will appreciate you, appreciate the gospel, appreciate salvation like we never have before. And so, Lord, we pray your blessing on this time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I try to make it a practice of mine over the last four years or so to, you know, when I'm studying here for a Sunday message, to not just let the content of the text inform what I'm going to say, but also to let the, the flow or the structure of the text inform how I say it. In other words, if I, if I come to a particular passage of Scripture and I see that there's a lot of truth you know, early on, and then a lot of application at the end, then I'll try to structure the sermon similarly. I'll, I'll explain a lot at the beginning and try to do all the applying at the end, or if maybe it's kind of mixed throughout the passage, well, then I'll try to mix it a little bit throughout the sermon as well. I, just, I don't want just what I say to be informed by the text. I'd even like for how I say it to be informed by the text as well. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I don't think I've done that perfectly. I'm, I'm not even saying that I do that well, I'm simply saying that in my preparation, I always take that into account each week as I'm working here, getting my notes together for our time on Sunday mornings. Having said that, I did not do that this week, okay? Not, not at all. Because had I done that this week, today's sermon would be starting much, much differently than it is right now. There'd be no introduction at all because when we were in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, what did we see? We saw Adam and Eve, they were happy, they were innocent. They were naked, they were there in the garden, everything's fine. And then all of a sudden you turn to chapter 3, verse 1, and boom, we're at the story of the fall. There's no in-between, okay? And I don't know about you, but I would have really enjoyed a chapter or two, perhaps, where Moses was explaining to us, you know, what was life like in the garden before the fall? Can you imagine reading about that? What was it like to live in a world where there was no sin? What was it like to live in a world where there was no pain, no death, where you had a perfect personal communion with God, which I assume is what Adam and Eve have, just based on what we see in Genesis 3, that God comes down and walks with them? Can you even imagine such a world? It would have been great if Moses had given us a few chapters on what that was like. Or at the very least, he could have given us just a bridge you know, between chapter 2 and 3, you know, something like, so Adam and Eve lived for many days, hours, months, years, whatever, in God's presence, enjoying the fellowship of God and the beauty of God's creation. And then one day, chapter 3, 
something just to tie the two together, but you don't get that at all. He just goes straight from chapter 2, the the end of day 6 there, and he jumps automatically into this story of the fall here in Genesis 3. Well, as we start working through this section here about the story of the rebellion, keep that word in mind, the rebellion of Adam and Eve against God, I was trying to think, given our limited time here at the end, what could I do today that would be helpful to prepare us to really understand what we're about to get into starting next week? I mean, can I provide any kind of bridge? Is there anything I could do just on a a sermon basis to help us move from what we saw in chapter 2 to chapter 3? And as I thought about this, this was like Monday or Tuesday, as I thought about this, I began thinking about a comment I made to you last week. I was talking about temptation last week, and I said that I would like to, but I wasn't promising, that I would like to try to develop a theology of temptation from here in Genesis chapter 3 as we work through it. And the more I thought about that idea, and I thought about you know what I wanted to do today, I thought, well, wait a minute, that's the bridge. That's the thing we can do this morning. It doesn't take a whole lot of time to just simply look at Genesis 3 and try to understand temptation, not from just the perspective of Adam and Eve, but from a a larger perspective. What's the general motif of temptation that we see here in the story that's going to permeate the rest of the scriptures and is going to be applicable to all of us? And so what I want to do this morning is just to go through these first six verses and put together this theology of temptation because I think doing so will give us a better understanding of the next section that we're about to jump into than if we were to jump into it without having done this. Now, just to clarify one thing before I begin, please understand my purpose this morning is to not go into the details of the story that we're seeing in Genesis 3. We're going to use the, the, the elements of the story as our our main points, our main concepts, but we're not going to flesh those out and develop them today. We're going to be doing that over the next several weeks here in Genesis 3, okay? Do you understand what I'm doing? My goal is simply to prepare us for that, help us to do it well. That's what I want to do. Let's start then by understanding something about the nature of the tempter, because we can't separate the tempter from the temptation, in Genesis 3, they, they're one and the same. They're together in the story, and they're together in our life as well. And as I look through these first six verses, two clear truths jump out at me about who the tempter is here in Genesis 3. Number one, you notice that the tempter appears in an unexpected way. He appears in an unexpected way. And you start there in verse 1, which again is a very abrupt beginning. He says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And I pointed out to you last time that the only description that Moses gives of this serpent here is that he is a beast of the field. That means he's a real serpent. This is not a figment of Eve's imagination. This is not a myth. He's not just making up a story so that you will you know, follow along with him. He, he sees a real serpent here in Genesis chapter 3. And the word serpent, just in case you're interested, doesn't necessarily mean snake. And we, we normally use that, which is fine, and I'll probably say it as, as well a lot <laughs> over the course of the next few weeks. So just bear with me. But it's just some kind of a serpent. It could be a lizard, it could be a dinosaur, whatever. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what it is. Moses' point is it's real. It's not fake. This is a real serpent here that he wants you to understand, which, of course, is interesting, right? Why didn't Satan simply appear as himself? 
Why didn't he just show up in the garden as who he was and said, oh, hi, hi, I'm Satan. Would you like to eat uh, of the tree? I got, some, I got a deal for you here. He doesn't do this way. And it's also interesting to me that, that you don't know if Eve is surprised by this. There's no indication in the text if she's really surprised by what she sees here. It's just a matter of, oh, hey, there's a serpent. He's talking to me. Oh, boy. You know, let's just continue on in the conversation. No, Satan here does not appear as himself. He uses means and intermediaries that are something other than what they first appear. In this story, particularly here at the beginning, the serpent doesn't come across even as being evil. He comes across as being really ignorant. You know, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Is that what I heard? Did I misunderstand you know, what I'm hearing as the, the general rumor here in the garden? Is that what God said? His question's not necessarily bad. But of course, by getting Eve into this conversation, eventually leads her to her own death. Both his approach and his appearance here are unexpected and ultimately deceive Eve. Folks, can I point out that Satan works the same way for us today? When he approaches us, he's not going to make it obvious that it's him. He doesn't come, show up on the scene and be like, oh, look, I'm here for your destruction. Would you like to? That's just not how it works. Not, not at all. As we saw last week in John 8, Jesus calls Satan the father of lies because that is who he is. He is a liar. He has been a liar since the beginning. Everything about him is a lie. And so when he presents himself to us, guess what? It's always in a deceptive kind of way. Everything about him is a lie, and we should be aware of that, knowing that he'll approach us in some kind of unexpected way. Number two, the tempter is smarter than his prey. Moses says that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. In English, that word crafty carries kind of a negative connotation. If I described you, know, you or someone you loved as a crafty person, would you be particularly thrilled about that? I'm guessing not. But in Hebrew, that's not the case at all. In Hebrew, the word just simply means wise, shrewd, cautious about dangers that might lay ahead. In fact, one of the reasons that we're told that Proverbs was written was to give prudence to the simple. That's the same word. To, to make the simple person wise, cautious, shrewd, aware of what's in front of them, aware of dangers that lay ahead. What Moses is doing here for us in the text is he is highlighting the wisdom and shrewdness of the serpent. But note this, he's not doing that in a vacuum. In fact, he's using a little play on words here that if you were an Israelite reading this or hearing this read to you, you'd be like, oh, I get it. In English, it doesn't come through, but in Hebrew, it does. Back in chapter 2, verse 25, Moses told us that Adam and Eve were naked. And the word for naked there in Hebrew is eremim. Okay? It's this, you can see how it's spelled there, A-R-U-M-M-I-M, eremim. It means innocent, open, exposed. Okay? There's, there's nothing, they're oblivious to evil. That's the idea here. Now in chapter 3, verse 1, the serpent comes along and he's crafty. He's Aram, A-R-U-M. It's a play on words. It would be kind of like if I said to you, hey, look, you know, so-and-so was really dopey. He started taking dope. The, the words dopey and dope don't mean the same thing. Dopey means stupid, and dope is a slang word for drugs. He's stupid, therefore he started taking drugs. I'm using a play on words to help you understand the point. And what Moses is doing here is saying, look, these people, they're innocent, open, exposed, oblivious to evil. 
And along comes a serpent who's quite the opposite. He's crafty, shrewd, wise. He knows what he's doing. Folks, what we learn here is that the serpent is smarter than his prey. And the same is true for us today. Satan is smarter than any one of us in this room. He's wiser than us. He's had thousands of years of experience in knowing how to tempt the children of God to rebel against him. He understands these things. That doesn't mean we should fear him. It doesn't mean you should go to, night, you know, go to, go to bed at night and be like, oh, I hope Satan doesn't come in the room like he's going to outsmart me. No, that's not the point. I'm just simply saying to you, you need to understand who, that, who he is and respect that. Be aware of that. Even Paul. Paul, the Apostle Paul, recognizes this truth in 2 Corinthians 2. And talking with the Corinthians about the man who had sinned, whom they had disciplined and were about to welcome back in, he gives them instructions about this whole scenario, and then he says to them the reason why he's telling them all this is so that they would not be outwitted by Satan. Because they're not ignorant of his designs. If, if the Apostle Paul, who I would say is way smarter than me and you and probably most people alive today, is concerned about being outwitted by, by Satan, do you really think that you and I should be any less concerned about this? This is, this is who we're dealing with here in temptation. The tempter is a being who appears in unexpected ways who's smarter than his prey. Number two, notice the temptation itself. Okay, So we looked at the tempter. Let's look at temptation. Again, we're just trying to pick big picture things that we can draw from this. We'll see fleshed out in the weeks ahead. I see seven things here about temptation. We'll go through them very, very quickly. Number one, notice that the temptation came quickly and without warning. It just happened. Nothing in the story to indicate that there was any way that they could prepare themselves for this. Nothing in the story to tell them that they had some clue it was on the horizon. It just happens. Boom! Did God actually say? Do you experience any different kind of temptations than this? You're just out and about doing something totally random and it's like, boom, temptation. You're, you're minding your own business with no intent in your heart whatsoever for anything evil. And boom, temptation. This is how it works. And while this won't always be the case, it is often true that many of the temptations we face come at us completely unexpected with no warning whatsoever. That's regardless of severity or significance of the sin. This is how temptation comes, and we need to be aware of that. It's exactly what you see here. Number two, notice that the temptation questions God's word. See, did God actually say is his question. He's just simply asking a question. It seems innocent enough at the moment, but later, later he's going to completely deny what God has said. No, you will not surely die. God said you'll die on the day you do this. You're not surely going to die. In order for Satan's words here to have their intended effect, he first has to destroy their confidence in God's words. And he does that quite well in the story in just a very short period of time. I would argue we see, we see this as well. You know, it's easy for us to talk about, oh, you know, I want to I be joyful. I'm going to memorize all of these verses about joy. I want to study these verses. I want to I be a joyful person. And then when the moment of adversity comes into your life, what do you get? Discouraged. As if God's words had no meaning or significance whatsoever. It's easy to talk to our kids about truth, right? 
Oh, you need to tell the truth. Don't lie. Thou shalt not lie. It's easy. Don't lie to me. It's wrong. It's a sin. Until, of course, you're doing your taxes and you see that leaving off that little detail causes your refund to be a few hundred dollars more. See, then where was God's words in your life? Where was his truth then for you? Satan, he doesn't work any differently now than he did then. You see it? It's the same exact thing. The temptation is rooted in a fundamental questioning of God's words, but it gets worse. Number three, the temptation accuses God's will. You won't surely die because God knows that he's holding out on you. Oh yeah, if you do this, if you do this, then you're going to be like God. There's something good around the corner if you simply do what I'm telling you to do. See, Satan is questioning God's goodness and integrity with these words. He's questioning whether or not God really has their best intention at heart. He's questioning his will for them. And we see the same thing, do we not? Oh, you know what? Does God really have your best interest at heart? Does he really want you to be happy? Because if he really has your best interest at heart, well, then he would want you to do. If he really wants you to be happy, then you should. It's a lie. If Satan can convince us that God does not have our best interest at heart, that he does not really care about us and who we are and what we need in life, then he's nearly won the battle. Number four... The temptation mixes truth with lie. And I pointed this one out last time, just as an example, last week as we were going through the overview. He tells them here that if they eat the fruit, they'll be like God and their eyes will be open to know both good and evil. And that's true. Partially. It's partially true. If they eat the fruit, their eyes will be opened. If they eat the fruit, they will know good and evil. That, all of that is true. There's also a lie mixed in there. If they eat the fruit, they'll be like God. Have you ever stopped and thought about that? Isaac and I were having this conversation after church last Sunday. Right now, in these first six verses, to me, that is the most fascinating aspect of this. Because they're already like God. They're made in his image and likeness. What is Satan offering them? And why does that have any pull in their heart? You would think that they would hear that and go, wait a minute, I'm already like God. I've been made in his image. I'm an image bearer of God. What? How is eating this fruit going to do more? But they don't think that way. Apparently, they see this offer of being more like God, and they think, oh, oh maybe, maybe there's another horizon I haven't crossed yet. Maybe there's something else I can possibly experience. And so they jump right in. The problem, though, with that is it's a lie. All of these things you see in these first six verses, they're mixtures of lies and truth, which, of course, is the essence of temptation, is it not? Okay, so here, if you just, you just drink that one more drink, one more, that'll be enough. Nope, it won't. If you just slept with one more person, one more, then you'd be satisfied. You won't. It never works like that. Maybe in the short term, you experience an element of what's offered, but in the long term, you don't get anything. Temptation is filled with these kinds of half-truths that are intended to trick us and lead us to disobey the clear commands of Scripture. That's a, an element of temptation you're going to see for the rest of the time in the Scriptures and in your own life today. Number five, temptation appeals to the appetite and I use the word appetite here purposely 
because I'm not referring to their stomach. Now, later in Genesis 3, verses 5, 6, right around there, Eve's going to look at the fruit and she's going to say, oh, that looks good for food. It's pleasant to the eyes. It's pretty. I want it. It begins to appeal to those appetites, but that's not the primary appetite that Satan is appealing to in Genesis chapter 3. If you look at the text, you'll see the appetite I'm referring to is the appetite of selfishness, of self-worship. Because everything the serpent says is focusing attention on who? On Adam and Eve. So here's what this will do for you, Satan says. Here is what you will get from this. He's drawing their attention inward onto themselves and away from God. And in so doing, he is stirring up an appetite for self-worship, for self-focus. And then he's willing to feed that appetite. I know you see the corollary of this today. This is exactly what James talks about in James chapter 1. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. His own. Underline the word own. It's his own desire that's doing this. And then, of course, when the desire is conceived, he gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's fully grown, it, it brings forth death. See, the temptation isn't based on the thing itself. And I'll address this in a little more detail in just a second. It's not based on the thing itself, it's rooted in a heart of selfishness, a heart that wants the focus to be completely on on self. It's an appeal to that particular appetite. Number six, couldn't deliver what it promised. Couldn't. Adam and Eve didn't get what they expected, and neither do we. Ever. Ever. If I have one more drink, no, doesn't satisfy it. I do it one, oh no, it doesn't satisfy it. Temptation never delivers what it promises, and that's because the one who's offering it is a liar. Okay, he already told you this is this is how he is. He appears in unexpected ways, he uses unexpected means, he presents himself as a lie. Is it any wonder then that what he promises us is a lie as well? You can't trust him. Number seven, then finally, the temptation cannot be blamed on either environment or influence. Neither one is at fault. In other words, the power behind the temptation is not in external features, nor is it in influence. They they didn't sin because, you know, Eve is walking by the tree and all of a sudden it sticks out a branch with a piece of fruit on the end into her mouth and hits her mouth up and makes her take a bite. This is not what occurs here. Nor do they sin because they grew up in a less than ideal home situation. They're living in perfection with nothing external to them that is in any way a problem. There's, there's, there's nothing here. Nothing about their environment, nothing about the influences around them have led them to this point. They had lived in God's perfect world for some length of time, surrounded by God's super abundant provision. The power of temptation was not in either of those things. So, right here's the million dollar question. What was the power of temptation in then? Why is it that after all of this, they still sin? Well, it leads us ultimately to what I think is really the heart, at the heart of temptation, the power behind it, is this. The temptation is always a choice about who will be Lord in our lives. Ultimately, temptation is a question of sovereignty. Are you going to worship the one true God? 
are you going to be an idolater and worship yourself? See, that's what it's about. It's hard for us to think of ourselves as idolaters, isn't it? It's hard for me anyway. But every time I choose to sin, every time I choose to disobey what God has told me to do and do my own thing, whether it's small or big, whether it's important or not, quote-unquote, in my mind, what I'm saying is, I am my own Lord. I am my own God. You can take a walk. We, we hate to think of it that way because we don't ever want to picture ourselves as being so brazenly disobedient to God. But is there any other way to explain it? I can't think of one. Every temptation is ultimately a question of sovereignty, a question of who will be Lord in our lives. For Adam and Eve here in Genesis 3, Satan's going to raise the issue of who will be sovereign over them. Will it be God and what he said? Or will it be themselves and what they want to do? And in the end, of course, we all know they choose to make themselves Lord, to try to become like God in some way that I don't even really understand in, you know, in their own hearts and minds. And in so doing, they bring about their own death and, and the death of the whole world around them. When it came time to choose who would be sovereign, they chose themselves and death entered the world as a result. Folks, the, the question is exactly, exactly the same for us. We need to see every single temptation we face as being a question of sovereignty, of who will be Lord in our life, because the facts of the matter are neither the tempter nor temptation has changed at all in all these thousands of years. So the tempter is still a person who appears in unexpected ways and is way smarter than any of us. And the temptations he gives us still come quickly without warning. They still question God's word, accuse his will. They mix truth with lies and they appeal to our appetites. Never deliver what they promise. And we can never blame them on the things around us. No, the problem is always inside of us. The problem is that we want to be Lord of our own lives. Fact of the matter is, though, what? Jesus came to be Lord of our lives, did he not? Thus, Paul in Colossians 2 can make a comment to the effect of, all right, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. Okay, You didn't just receive him as Savior to make a, a very clear, non-questionable distinction for you all this morning. You received him as Lord, now, now live your life that way. Walk in that. Li live your life underneath his lordship because it really is what it's all about. It's great for us to think of Jesus as being just our savior. I, I'm glad that he is, don't get me wrong. He didn't just come to be that. He came to be an authority, the number one authority in our lives. And even, even as I think about the rest of the New Testament, I think of Philippians 2, where after Paul talks about how Jesus came and, and emptied himself and died on the cross, that God has highly exalted him and has given him a name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord the glory of God the Father. See, the God himself, God the Father and his plan for Jesus and what he would be to us. He saw Jesus as the Lord that was to replace the idol in our own hearts, which was ourself. You were your own idol in accepting Christ. You're throwing that idol away. 
and you're replacing it with none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. What I want you to see today, and again, this has been very brief. I hope you'll forgive me. But what I wanted you to see today is that when we begin to work through this passage here in Genesis 3, the sin of Adam and Eve isn't just a mistake. As I said last week, it's not just like an oops, my bad kind of thing. We're going to see that their sin here in Genesis 3 is nothing short of a complete and total rebellion against the sovereignty of God in this world. That's what it is. A complete, total rebellion against the sovereign king of the universe. And if folks, if we see it in any other light, any other light whatsoever, then we are only going to trivialize what we're about to study and what's in our own hearts and lives. Lord Jesus, we have just taken a very few brief minutes this morning to understand what temptation is here in Genesis 3. And we see it now very clearly, and we're going we're gonna to keep coming back to this, Lord, in the weeks ahead. We see very clearly that the temptation that Adam and Eve faced is not simply one of eating fruit versus not eating fruit. The fruit doesn't matter. The question that was in front of them was who would be Lord? You or them? And like every single person in this room, Father, they chose themselves. And so here we are as a group of people assembled together in this room and every single one of us can relate because we have thoroughly, completely rebelled against you. Every day, every time we sin, we see more and more rebellion It's not just a practical battle. It's a worship battle. It's a spiritual battle about who will be the Lord of our lives. Will it be you or will it be us? So Father, first of all, I pray that you will make that that super clear in our hearts. Help us to see that and understand that, that that what we're really going to see in these next few weeks is that Adam and Eve became idolaters They loved themselves and they rebelled against you as a result. Help us to see that about our own lives. But Lord, we don't don't want to just see the ugliness of what temptation is and the ugliness of our own hearts. We, We live with that every day. Help us to see the beauty of the grace and love and mercy of Jesus Christ that is really on display even here in Genesis 3. As we watch you in your kindness and love for them provide, to give promises, all these wonderful things. Help us to understand, Lord, that when you came and died on the cross and we placed our faith in you, it wasn't simply so that we wouldn't go to hell. That's a benefit and we're thrilled about it. But it's so that you can become the Lord of our life that you were originally meant to be. We want to go back to Genesis 1 and 2. We're tired of Genesis 3. We want to go back and live our lives in a manner that is worthy of you. And so, Lord, I ask your blessing, not just on this message today, but on next week and the week after, the week after that, that as we come and we deal with each of these components in detail, that we will be able to see ourselves clearly, but to see you clearer still. 
And so, Father, we love you, and we thank you so much for your word, which cuts to the very core of our being, shows us who we are, and we ask that we will be filled with the joy of Jesus Christ, both today and for the weeks ahead. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.